Why haven't you seen the gold Why haven't you seen Dialem for Murder? Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. I am Bubba Wheat from FlightsTightsAndMovieNights.com, and as usual for every episode, I have a guest on who introduces me to a film that they're passionate about that I've never seen, and in return, I introduce them to a comic book or superhero movie that they're curious about and have never seen themselves. Today, my guest is Jay Cluett from Life vs. Film and the Lambcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me back on. Yeah, and you are another one of my handful of three-time guests, um, and I don't have any sort of returning questions, uh, and I did not go back and look up your answers to my previous questions, but if you're curious, you were on way back early on, I believe it was episode six, where we talked about 12 Angry Man and Superman the movie, and uh, about a year later, he came back on and we talked about Titanic and Dick Tracy. Um, but before we get back into it, why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online for anybody that's not familiar with you? Of course, yes. Uh, well, my, my answers to your questions have probably changed anyway. So yeah. <laughs> I think when I was on last time, they changed as to the three films I watch most often. But anyway, uh, you can find me. My main site is Life vs. Film, which is lifevsfilm.com. Um, I'm mainly going through the thousand movies you must see before you die list, although we're not, to- we're not talking about anything from that today, so it's fine. Uh, I also host the Lambcast for the, the Lamb, which is the large association of movie blogs. Bubba, you've been a guest many, many times. and mm-hmm. will be again. We'll be doing a show tomorrow, I think. Um, you can find that on iTunes just by searching Lambcast, where we cover pretty much everything film-related. If we don't cover it, let us know and we'll do a show on it. Uh, I also write for French Toast Sunday, FrenchToastSunday.com. I occasionally write for Blueprint Review, which is BlueprintReview.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at LifeVSFilm or at Lambcast. Yeah, Everywhere. You, you are just as busy as I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I should write for Channel Superhero, but I just don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you there. I'm, but we can talk about that some other time. Um <laughs> But I do have a little bit of a discussion because it, it, I think it ties in with the uh, superhero film or sort of superhero film. Um, and something that I haven't talked about is, at least I don't think I have on this podcast, as to what my criteria is for what I think defines a superhero film. Because a, a comic book film is pretty easy. It's just a film that's been that's adapted by a comic book or it features characters that were uh, introduced in a comic book. But superheroes are a little bit... Um, they, different people have different definitions of a superhero. And the, the film that we're talking about, Buckaroo Bonsai Across the, the Eighth Dimension... Uh, is probably one of the loosest definitions of a superhero uh, that I've covered on my site and and uh, on this podcast. Next to probably RoboCop is is an, another one that's um, that I've gotten some a little bit of pushback from some people who don't think RoboCop is exactly a superhero. It's it's just Peter Weller. I think it seems to be the problem. <laughs> he he's not a superhero. That's, that seems to be the, the running theme. Yeah, uh, apparently, and and I didn't even. I think I thought about that, but I I didn't think about that just right then. But uh, so, but before I get into my criteria, um, do you like? 
do you have anything? Have you thought about this since since I did bring it up to you that we we're going to be talking about this as to what you think a superhero is? Well, I'd say a superhero. If I had to to lay down something, it would be he has to have superpowers. Like, has to have something that separates them from what normal humans could do. So you've got people like Superman, Spider-Man, depending on what version of Spider-Man you look at, who have these abilities of flight or web sting or whatever. But when you look at people like Batman or Iron Man, they have this immense wealth and knowledge and training that Mm -hmm. set them as superheroes. Which you could then argue that people like Bruce Lee are superheroes. Right. I think I'd be okay with that. I think I'd be okay with calling Bruce Lee a superhero. Like, so a superhero film needs to have a superhero kind of front and center. When we're looking at Buckaroo Banzai, on the surface, I'd say he's he's his film probably isn't a superhero film. It's more of a sci-fi kaleidoscope <laughs> film of some kind. It's it's a film yeah, it, beyond it's really description <laughs> that we'll get into, I'm sure. Uh, but but if you, depending on how you look at it and how seriously you want to take it, which we'll get into later, th- you could argue that he is a superhero. You know, he's got he's got a gang with him. He's got a specific vehicle. He he has certain powers. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a he's a doctor. He's a rock star. He's, yeah. He's incredibly famous. He's on first name basis with the president. He's <laughs> several uh, presidents, it seems, when he gets a phone call and says, "The president of what?" Um, and he's a samurai, and he's a particle physicist, and he has the ability to summon miniature trumpets from nowhere, which is a superpower. It's not a very useful one, but it's a superpower. He has great hearing. He can hear somebody crying from thirty feet away <laughs> while <laughs> singing. Of course. So yeah, you you could argue, but I don't think it's a very serious argument to say he's a superhero. And I I kind of apologise for suggesting this film for a superhero podcast. Uh, <laughs> it very much fits into your criteria of a film I'm curious about, because yeah. I had no idea what it was before going in. I just kind of thought, I liked the cast. That's the only reason I wanted to watch it, is because <laughs> the people in it. Yeah, and and I will agree with you to a certain extent that... Um, that superpowers is is one of the kind of the biggest criteria that I have as to what I think qualifies as a superhero film and and also the way I look at it is I don't necessarily like it, it doesn't have to have all of my criteria to be considered a superhero film but it has to have quite a few of them um, and, and like superhero or superpowers is definitely one of those um, and. And like you mentioned, it's arguable that like uh, Batman has incredible wealth and uh, knowledge and training as his superpower, even though he's always looked at as the one that the biggest hero that doesn't have superpowers, um, and also like the Punisher as well, and also um, which it, it ties into the my the comic book films. But I think if if the uh, the hero uh, got its start in comic books. Uh, I think that's that's another um, good qualification to have. That like Dick Tracy started as like a comic strip in comic books, uh, even though he's not like a traditional comic or a traditional superhero. He's more like a police detective. But yeah. I kind of think that that part of that um, him coming from a comic book does make him a little bit more of a superhero than something else. I'd kind of agree with that. I, w- I wouldn't... I know we talked about it last time I was on here, but I wouldn't necessarily call him a superhero as much as I just call him a comic book character. That's, that's a, a 
comic adaptation in mm-hmm. the same vein that a history of violence is. Like that's not there's no superhero in the history of violence, but it's an ad- adaptation from a graphic novel. People, things like uh, the Rain Wilson film Super, mm-hmm. not really not really a superhero, just a, a, kind of a wannabe, but that gets by on being uh, almost a parody. Yeah, and, and also I, I I do think that that the costume and the the multiple like the secret identity, I, I think that is that's another staple of of superhero films. Um, even yeah, if someone yeah, doesn't have powers, like you said, like with Super and um, there's quite a few of those, like Special and, and Defendor, and uh, even Kickass to a lesser extent. Although well, arguably I, Mindy is has practically superpowers. Well, I, I'd argue that uh, Dave in Kickass has superpowers in that he has that accident which renders him <laughs> unable to feel pain. That is his superpower. He can he can take a beating. Like so that, that's a, that's a useful power to have when you're not very good at fighting. It seems so. I'd say he is a superhero. He fits my criteria at least. And yeah, that it that is something that does make him a little bit um, more tolerant to pain. So although he's not quite impervious to pain, because whenever yes, it gets yes. uh, with some actual mobsters, um, they do definitely do a number on him still. Um, and and I think another big thing for me, which it doesn't so much include a lot of extra. Uh, superhero movies, but it does exclude a few. I, I think that for it to be a superhero film, it has to take place in the modern day or the near future. Um, like I, I think if I wanted to put a date on it, I would say like anything after 1900. See, that's that's one of your criteria that I might disagree with because I would really like to see a superhero film set in like Shakespearean time or in. Like cavemen times would be really interesting. <laughs> like some, something set in the past where somebody you can't really have like an Iron Man kind of thing. It'd just be like a guy with a big rock. But it would be like somebody who can fly or somebody who can have telekinesis, but is in the past. I I don't know why that wouldn't be a superhero film. Well, I I think it it could, but it it would have to have several of the like I said, it would have to have several of the other things because I don't really look at Zorro as being a superhero or even the, like the Lone Ranger. Um, because those those aren't really they they are masked Avengers. Um, they do have like the the secret identity. They're good at fighting, but because the Lone Ranger is more like a, a Western hero, and Zorro is more like more of like a swashbuckler, like along the lines of Robin Hood and and those kind of things. I I look at it in a at a different category. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I, I'd include them in in the same category as Dick Tracy of not quite being superheroes either. But because but, they haven't got superpowers, they're just well trained. Yeah, um, and also like uh, like fantasy movies. Like whenever you look at wizard witches and wizards, like uh, the Lord of the Rings. That that's that. I mean, it, it's a it's set in the past. It's a fictional past because it's this past that has magic. And even like Conan the Barbarian, um, that has like magic and uh, things like that. And that you could define, you could arguably say that they're superpowers, but I look at them as fantasy movies and not superhero films. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. There. I haven't seen Conan. Um, I don't really want to, but <laughs> I, could, I have no desire to really watch that film. It looks terrible. Um, but yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, he's not really. It's just I, I don't think 
Schwarzenegger could be a superhero. It just seems <laughs> like he already is one, kind of. He's already like beyond belief as a as a person. Like yeah, put him in a much. film, put him in a film with a cape and a mask, and it just becomes ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what what exactly he could be in in a superhero movie because definitely not Other than Doctor Freeze, <laughs> right? <laughs> definitely not Doctor Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> we've already seen how that turns out and and I also think going too far in the future that just lends itself as being like a sci-fi movie where if everybody has enough advanced technology then um, then the superhero element doesn't really apply and unless like I said it has several of the other elements like uh, like the mask the the secret identity and um like fighting crime, and, and and I also think that that superhero films in general, except for like the dark and gritty ones, they're very theatrical in in nature. Um, like everything is larger than life. It, it's not just somebody stopping a murder. It's this. Uh, it's almost like um, serial killers style. Uh, except it's not just a bunch of gruesome murders. It's a bunch of these larger-than-life murders from this villainous personality that wants to be known. Yes, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, superhero films should should be a heightened reality, a more extreme, more entertaining kind of kind of world. You don't. I don't tend to like the more believable things like uh, Christopher Nolan's front, uh, Batman franchise aside. If a superhero film tries to be more realistic, I tend to like it a bit less. I mean, get, like Man of Steel tried to make Superman realistic, which why? <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> like, the whole point of Superman is is he's neon, he's brightly coloured, he's not of this realm, and they try and make it more realistic. I I didn't see the most recent Fantastic Four film. I don't think many people did. I feel sorry for those that did by the sounds of it, but I I hear that was trying to be more realistic as well, and I'm thinking, what are you doing? It's Fantastic Four. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's misunderstanding the franchise at base level. This is fun. It's not sincere. (laughs) Yeah, it's not... doing it wrong. It's not quite the body horror that... uh, that he was trying to do it at some point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and I think for me that's that's pretty much it. I I, I think yeah, if, if I break it down, like the you got the comic book, you have the the superpowers, the the costume and secret identity, um, and like I was saying with RoboCop, that's that's one where I get a little bit of flack. But whenever you look at that film, then um, even though he didn't start out at a comic book, they did make a RoboCop comic book after the movies. Um, <laughs> and RoboCop definitely has superpowers. He's he's a cyborg. I mean, they have a comic book character called Cyborg that's pretty much is RoboCop. Uh, and nobody disagrees that Cyborg <laughs> is a superhero, even though he doesn't hasn't had a solo movie yet. Um, and he he does have pretty much this alternate identity, and that's what I really liked about the first movie is how like his his uh, regular name is gone, um, and he's only known and referred to as RoboCop, and then at the end he regains his name. Yeah. Um, and and it does take place in the near future because 
I mean, everything's still pretty much the same. It just has these extra future trappings here and there. They just have the, the ability to do this robot stuff now. Right. Yeah. And so um, tech cars and other things. Now, the the your rule about the um, the hero originating from a comic book, comic book. What if they have a comic book based on them within the film? <laughs> such, <laughs> such as Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah. Would that's... that count for that criteria? <laughs> I think that's pretty pretty close. And and they did make a. Uh, a comic book simultaneous to the film, and and it was actually um, Marvel Comics. Okay, I didn't realize that. Okay, but that so that came out after the film, or yeah, I've, I I'm not sure if it was like uh, I believe it was very shortly after, like within a couple months, because it, it was um, I believe it was intended to be like cross promotion. Okay, I see. Fair enough. All right. Well. Um, I think that hopefully that clears things up a little bit for for the listeners on what I think of as a superhero movie and and I'm and I'm curious if if anybody else disagrees with me or or has any examples that they think don't fit into that but still is considered a superhero movie or uh, anything like that, feel free to email me um, or find me on Twitter at Bubba Weed. So you can email me at Bubba Weed at msn.com. Um, and I'd love to hear it if, uh, and I, um, if it's worthwhile, then I can read it on the show as well on the future episode. But uh, I think it's time to get into the film that you had me watch for the first time, Dial M for Murder. What could you tell them? I should simply tell them that you're trying to blackmail me into into murdering your wife. Tell him yes on one and no on two. And you suggest that he came in by the window. Run, run! And this man is to be your murder weapon. If we blow this today, there ain't no tomorrow. And Mark, ironic, isn't it? No matter where you go, there you are. Hello. Uh, Dialem for Murder is directed by Alfred Hitchcock, who is... Probably my favourite director of all time, I'll go ahead and say. Uh, last October, I celebrated Hitchcocktober, where uh, I reviewed as many films as I could. I reviewed thir- 13 in October. I've actually got eight films left of his left to watch and review. One of which was Dial M for Murder, which I've seen a couple of times before, needed to review. So I thought, perfect opportunity, I can make Bubba watch it. So I, I, back on your 50th episode, I think, when you covered Psycho, you said you hadn't seen very many Hitchcock films. I think you've, right. seen, you've now seen Psycho. Which other ones have you seen, if any? Um, let's see, I've seen Psycho, Rear Window, Vertigo, Rope, um, which was an early episode of FilmWise, and possibly one other one that I'm forgetting. Okay, well, um, he, he's directed 50 or 60. Oh, North by Northwest, which was Excellent. also another episode. Yes, of course, I remember. Yes, North by Northwest and Rear Window are my two favourites, so I'm glad that you've seen those two. And Psycho as well. You have to see Psycho. So yeah. uh, this one was uh, he released it in 1954. It was originally released in 3D, which we'll, we'll get into. Uh, the the basic plot sees a, a man called Tony, who's played by Ray Milland, who is a former tennis star, uh, who's retired now because he's gotten a bit too old for it. He's now selling sports equipment. Uh, he's married to Margot, who's played by Grace Kelly. This was the, the first of three times she worked with, with Hitchcock. She is my favourite Hitchcock uh, actress. Um, I have a bit of a soft spot 
for Grace Kelly, particularly in Rear Window. She's stunning in that. Uh, she's been having an affair, however, with a guy called Mark, Mark Halliday, played by Robert Cummings, who is a murder novelist, which just amuses me that he's in this, in this film and he's a murder novelist. Um, Tony has found out about this and has devised a plan to bump Margot off and get her uh, her will, which is for £90,000, which back in 1954, quite a lot of money, it seems. Uh, in order to do this, he hires a guy, a guy named Swan, who is an actor I can never remember the name of. Jo- uh, let's see here. Anthony Dawson plays, plays Swan. Uh, he's a guy that went to school with Tony, a bit down on his luck, and so Tony recruits him to kill his wife. Um, doesn't all go to plan. I know you don't mind spoilers on this one, but we'll kind of go into it a little bit uh, as we go. Um, doesn't all go to plan. Margot ends up killing Swan, and so Tony has to kind of change the story a little bit to get it the way it goes. Uh, I really, really like this film because of the plot and because of the mainly because of the Inspector character who showed up in the second half. I, I, I love the character of Inspector Hubbard, played by John Williams. He's just this little fussy little bow tie in his in his moustache and everything he does. Uh, but what- I, I will say just real quickly, uh, one of the things that made me laugh the hardest is the very last scene where he just <laughs> where he pulls out the mustache comb yes. and starts <laughs> combing his mustache. Just- it just seems so random. And odd and out of place. That it's... I, I, everything he does, he just has lots of little nice touches. Like the first time we see him, he comes into their their apartment, their flat, and he's looking for somewhere to put down his hat and his coat, and he's just really annoyed that there's nowhere to put anything. So he puts his coat on a chair, and he gets really annoyed when Tony sits on it, and it's all crumpled up. Just uh, everything he does, I, I, I find amusing. I don't know why. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, what did you think of Dialem for Murder? And, and more particularly, what did you think was going to happen? Um, I... I actually didn't really know anything at all about this film before I watched it. Um, the the only thing I knew was just the the little bits and pieces that I pulled from the uh, the audio of the trailer that that I cut into the the last episode. So I knew that there was uh, some plot about an affair and something to do with a phone, and that's literally all I knew about it. <laughs> um, but I I really enjoyed it, and and I didn't know. Which way it was going because I, like I, um, as it was going, I was thinking that it was going to be one thing, but then it went in a different direction. Like um, as he was plotting the the murder, like whenever he invited the person over, um, uh, whenever he invited Swan over and was going over that, like I almost thought that he was going to kill Swan at first, just the way he had everything set up where he pretended to have a trick knee uh, for some reason and then he started going on about his wife's affair and how he was the the person that uh, um, was basically blackmailing her um, in order to just get her to come clean about it and then he went over the the plans for his murder and then whenever it started I thought it was going to be one of those things where everything uh, like didn't go according to plan, um, but I I didn't expect that she was going to be the the person that kills Swan. And then whenever it's like I almost thought that he was going to get caught right there, but then whenever he switched it to basically frame her for the murder, um, I thought I thought that that was um, at first I thought it wasn't going to fly, and then as it it was clear that it was going to be successful, I thought it was going to be successful to the very end and then it got turned around one more time 
yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's it's a very it's a very a very dense film for it's mm-hmm. like a, a hundred minutes with an intermission because uh, this, this is based on a play by uh, Frederick Knott, I think, uh, who. But it, I, I love, I just love the story of how intricate it is, how everything's set up, how many turns it takes. As you say, I mean, when Swan is going to kill Margot, it's it's all based on Tony making. He's got an alibi at a stag do with with Mark, um, and he, it's all based on him him phoning up the house to wake up Margot at the right time with with Swan behind the curtain, and his watch has stopped, and he's twenty five minutes late, and you're thinking, oh, Swan's emerged from the curtain, he's halfway across the room. She's, the phone's going to ring, but he's going to be in the way, and you just say all these things are going to going to kind of go wrong, but they don't. It's, that's not what goes wrong. What goes wrong is Margot actually just turns around and kills him. There's the scissors at her hand, mm. and that 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 murder scene, that that struggle, is probably the the most iconic scene of the film. It's the one on on the poster on the DVD cover with. Uh, Swan kind of has got Margot bent over the desk and she's reaching out to get, grab the scissors. Um, and that, that is kind of the 3D of the film. It was, I'd say it was shot in 3D. Pretty much every, every frame is very layered with people stood in the foreground or a big lamp or a handbag or something right up against the camera and other things layered, layered in the background. I think it must, the, the effect of that murder scene, watching it in 3D back in the cinema in the 50s must have been great. Just with that hand coming right to your face. I don't think the 3D actually did very well when it came out because it was at the tail end of the kind of the 3D fad and it got pulled and replaced with a 2D version almost immediately, which is a shame. I think it got re-released in the 80s in 3D. Which I've never seen it in 3D, only with 2D. But yeah, I, I love the plotting and how intricate it all is. Yeah, I didn't even think about... Like, I didn't know the about the 3D elements. Uh, whenever I tweeted that I was watching it, somebody else mentioned about the, the 3D, but it was just kind of casually, and, and I was paying attention to the movie, so I like I kind of shrugged it off and, and didn't really think about it. Um, but I did notice like the a lot of moments of depth, but for whatever reason, I think just because I'm... I'm one of those that's more or less anti 3D uh, in films. That I I never really thought about it with 3D in mind because there there wasn't really any of those um, those like stereotypical 3D <laughs> moments. No, no one fires an arrow with the screen kind of thing. No. Right. Yeah, but, I, but there I, is I, a I, lot of depth. Like I I think one of the first things that I noticed was whenever she like went into the other room to get her handbag early on. And the camera stays um, to where you're seeing her through the doorway, and she's like all the way in the background getting her handbag instead yeah. of having a cut and basically following her into the room. Yeah, it, it makes good use of the set. It's it's almost been filmed like the play it's based on, with almost entirely within this this one apartment, mainly in the kind of the, the drawing room area, a little bit in the bedroom. And it's, so the camera stays within within the realms of those walls for most of the the film. It even uses some uh, some techniques from a play. Like they've got a kitchen, which at one point they're showing the inspector. He the, the intruder couldn't possibly have come into the kitchen. There's bars on the window. They just open the door. You don't go into the kitchen. You see this reflection or the shadow of bars <laughs> on the opposite wall. And I just like that. That's that simple. They've shown it. Done. Moving on. And I I, I like how they've incorporated the elements of the play. That's like. Quite often you'd find directors uh, to uh, adaptating a play. Think of the the recent Les Mis, which is 80% close-ups, I think. This doesn't need to do that. It's It just keeps the frame wide, keeps everyone in shot, 
because that's the story. Take it, tell it. That's that's the main thing here. It's it's the story. It doesn't matter if people think, oh, it's based on a play. It still looks like a play. I, mean, I could have just gone and seen the play. No, just <laughs> seen the film. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, and did you did you spot the cameo? The headshot cameo. Yes, I I actually did. Um, where I I think I missed it in in one of the earlier films that I watched. But yeah, I saw him in in the uh, the picture next to uh, Swan with the cigar. This, yeah, it's one of my favorite cameos. Just I like when when Hitchcock gets uh, creative. Like um, my favorite one is from Lifeboat which is another great Hitchcock film. It's set entirely on a lifeboat uh, with his ten characters. Um, but he's on. He's in a newspaper in that as, a, as the before image for a weight loss pill. <laughs> that, that's my favourite one of his cameos, but this one's my, probably my second one. Just in a, in, a, in a photo on the wall, the same one that Swan's in, just turning to look at the camera. Simple, done. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I really like that one. Um, and th- this has got one of Hitchcock's main, main th- two of his main themes, which is a, a premeditated murder. This one being very premeditated almost a year in advance. That's how long, uh, how long Tony's been saving up the money. And it's also got the uh, wrongly convicted. It's, it's only a wrong man. In this case, it's the, the wrong woman when, when Margot is, is framed for murder, which she's technically committed. It's self-defense or whatever. And I, I, I like those themes throughout Hitchcock's work. They're, they're used differently than normal in here. Um, what did you think about the framing and how and the turn that it took? Yeah, I, I'm, like, I've, I've, I really enjoyed... Like a lot of it, I, I think it it looked great. The um, like you said, the the one thing that w- that I will say was a little distracting um, it, as far as the way it was shot, but it, just because it almost made it feel like a dream sequence was the the trial. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you there. It's very very stylized. And, and that kind of takes me out of the film a little bit, that sequence where she's looking almost straight at the camera to one judge and then another judge and then another judge um, being being condemned for murder, being sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's all the, the like dramatic lighting shifts. Yeah, it reminded me of another Hitchcock film called Spellbound, which has a, a dream sequence. I, th- I think it was Salvador Dali worked on that one. It was either him or Louis Bunuel, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, that that's another one that takes a bit of a weird turn. And and in Vertigo, the sequence in Vertigo where all the flashing lights and the spinning heads and things. Mm. Yeah, so it, it's it's not unknown for Hitchcock to do something that stylized. It's just unexpected in, in this film. I can't imagine that would have been the case if they when they did it on stage. I don't know what they would have done then. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Let's see. I, I also really, I really liked um, Ray Millen's performance as Tony. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's unusual to have the the hero and the villain be the same person. You almost root for him at times because uh, yeah. he, he's he's initially the wronged party. He's been cheated on. Uh, he just wants a very extreme kind of vengeance. <laughs> um, which you know, at, at times you kind of want him to want him to succeed almost, like to yeah. get away with it because he's he's very charismatic. He looks like. I think he looks like if Cary Grant and, and James Stewart got into the machine from the fly. <laughs> he he looks like an, an amalgamation of the two. Which yeah, I actually agree with you there. Like I was, um, I was trying to figure out if if I had seen him in anything, and and I was thinking to myself, you know, he, he does look a little bit like Jimmy Stewart, but uh, it's definitely not Jimmy Stewart, it, and he sounds a little bit like a maybe a British. Cary Grant. Uh, uh, Cary Grant actually is British. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm pretty. I think he was born in London. I think. Um, 
But yeah, I, I think I describe, I describe him as being Cary Grant with James Stewart's face. Like <laughs> the, the central part of his face is James Stewart. Uh, he's most famous from the, the Lost Weekend, which I'll admit I haven't actually seen yet. Um, but that's where most people might know him from. Hmm. Yeah, but I, I really like him in here. He's just he's he's, he's smarmy. You kind of want to punch him, but he, <laughs> he, he, he somehow you're also on his side. Yeah, he, um, he definitely makes he definitely does a great job of making the audience feel like he's smarter than everybody else in the room. Yes, until the inspector arrives. Mm. And um, one, one great thing I, I love when Hitchcock does is, for the most part, we know everything that's going on. We're, we're told everything that's happening. He does the same thing in, in Rear Window, where we see everything that the main character sees until an element in the third act where something happens and we don't see it, where we're not quite privy to it, which is when the inspector switches the coats. That's the first point we don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And switches the keys, or whatever. Like in in Rear Window, it's the moment when James Stewart is asleep, and we see Thorwald kind of look at the camera and go down the stairs. Uh, so I, I I like when he does that because now he's he Hitchcock is kind of saying, okay, you've been following me so far. Try and keep up. Try and work out what's going on. Kind of, yeah, like and that. that was definitely like I I absolutely noticed that point where he switched the codes, and I was trying to figure out why he switched the codes. Yeah, and I, 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 I love the final act. I love when Mark comes in with the, with the plan of, Tony, confess, make something up. And the plan he makes up is the exact plan all along. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, that, and, that part, like, I, I enjoyed it, but I almost, it almost made me think that uh, at that point he was working with the inspector. But then um, shortly afterwards, the inspector kind of makes it seem like that's not the case. I think that's almost intentional, because although I've seen this before, I thought the same thing. I couldn't remember if he was in, and out, in on it or not. Um, so I think it's just another way of Hitchcock kind of um, toying with you and trying to work out, trying to see if you can keep up where he's going and mm-hmm. second-guessing him. So, and, and I almost thought that that, that's, uh, that Swan's latchkey, uh, like I, I thought I might have actually missed something, and I thought that was to unlock the uh, the attaché case. Okay, I'm with you. Um yeah, I never came across that because we don't see the, the attaché case until after Swan is is no longer with us. Uh, but yeah, I, I do enjoy what they do with the key as well. Mm. That before I, before I saw this, even my first time around, I knew that there was something happened with a key because on an episode of The West Wing, they watch <laughs> Dilemma of Murder and they say that the president loves the bit with the key. And so I, I was waiting for something to happen with the key. <laughs> and I, I wasn't disappointed. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, Anything anything else you want us to talk about on it? Um, no, I I think we've pretty much covered it. So, I mean, I, I'm sure there's probably more to talk about, uh, but I just really love the the fact that that it did keep me guessing, and and that's and I'm one of those annoying people where if you put uh, a predictable plot in front of me, then I will lay it out from beginning to end after the first five, ten minutes. Yeah, I've heard you talk about how your your wife gets very annoyed when you do that with, with very predictable romantic comedies. And I'll admit, I'm the same thing with my, my, my partner. She gets very, very irritated when we start watching The Notebook and I just say, well, that's that character, that's that character, this is what's going to happen the entire way through. And she just looks like she wants to hit me. <laughs> and just ruined her favorite film. I was like, well, pick better films. But yeah, I, I was kind of intrigued as to knowing your reputation for doing that, whether you'd work this one out. And I'm, I'm pleased you didn't, because first time around, neither did I. And I, I, I do enjoy films that keep you guessing. 
Yeah, I, there was just like a, a few bits here and there where where I knew like bits of what was going to happen, like like just a few seconds before it actually happened. But as far as broad strokes, I like it, it did keep me guessing, and and I didn't know exactly how it was going to end up. And from from a mystery thriller, that what more could you want? Yeah. Yeah, excellent. If you, if for listeners, if you haven't seen Dialem for Murder, we haven't spoiled all of it, so I would advise you all to go and see it. It's, it's a, a great film. It's not a long film either. You can easily watch both both of these films in an evening, like I did yesterday. <laughs> like it's not like last time when we talked about Titanic that was three hours long. Right. This, this this time around, two nice, fairly short films. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And speaking of our other film, we are going to take a quick break, and whenever we come back. We're going to talk about the film that you that I had you watch for the first time, which was also the first time for me, Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, or The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. I'm looking forward to you trying to explain this. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Alright guys, so we need to record our top three reasons why you should listen to French Toast Sunday podcast. Number three should definitely be our diverse opinions. Number two should probably be our top three lists that we do every week. No, it's gotta it's gotta be Mark Wahlberg. What about Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It's gotta be fighting the sadness in the swamp of sadness. Full frontal. Stories about being lost at sea. Brendan Fraser being underground. Helen Merritt's boobs. Baltimore accents as heard in the wire. Underclaws. Crepes. Character studies. Wait, 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 guys. What about movies? No. Tree rape. Hmm. Tree rape? Yeah, I like tree rape. Tune in every Friday for a new episode of French Toast Sunday Podcast, brought to you by us at FrenchToastSunday.com. Clothing made out of Burger King wrappers. <laughs> yeah, so... So this film, which most people just call Buckaroo Banzai, and I think that's what we're going to go with uh, for the rest of this discussion, uh, is it stars Peter Weller and also has quite a few notable names who would later go on to uh, uh, to be much more famous, like uh, 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 Christopher Lloyd, John Jeff Lithgow, Goldblum. Ellen Barkin, uh, Jeff Goldblum, of course. Clancy Brown. Uh, yeah, Clancy Brown. That's that was one that actually surprised me because I He's so young. Yeah, and and he's he's an actor that I'm uh ve- that I'm fairly familiar with. Uh, but he's like I'd never really heard of him brought up in the context of Buckaroo Banzai, which is is pretty much a cult film along with like many other films around this era, this era like Big Trouble in Little China and uh, to a lesser extent, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, just because it's the. I think the big difference is this doesn't really have any sort of counterculture aspect to it. But uh, it came out in 1984. It, it was a bomb, but uh, uh, a lot of things have have uh, been influenced by this film. And and I know like one of the the lines that takes place early on that I had definitely heard before. But it still makes me laugh. Is uh, is uh, John Lithgow whenever he says, "What are you laughing at, Monkey Boy?" <laughs> yeah. And the person he's saying that to is Mike from Breaking Bad. It's uh, John Jonathan Banks. Mm. If, if I'm not sure if you watched Breaking Bad or not, but I, I recognized his voice before I recognized his face. So 
So yeah, yeah, I, I haven't watched. I only made it about halfway through the first season, not because it was uh, bad, but just because uh, I haven't had set aside time to watch it. Uh, yeah, I watched the first season and it took me like a few years to get back into it, just because my partner didn't like it. So just it's finding the time to watch it when she wasn't around. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I know how you mean. <laughs> but like we mentioned in in the first part of this podcast, uh, Buckaroo Banzai, he is a rock star. He's a neuroscientist, a particle physicist. His parents were, uh, I think one of them was Japanese. Uh, he had a, a Japanese father and an American mother. The American mother in the deleted scenes played by Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I did watch the deleted, that deleted opening, but I, I didn't, like, I've, I couldn't recognize. I couldn't really recognize her just in the because she's not really prominently featured too much. I, I like, did there's watch no close-ups. I've just seen that on IMDb and thought, what the hell? I need to go and watch this now. But he <laughs> has. But the the main thing involves like these two groups of aliens that are all named John, <laughs> and there's the the red electroids and the black electroids and. And I will be honest, I I watched this film, it, it took me like two settings because I, I started it a little bit too late at night, and I have no idea what this what was going on in this <laughs> film whatsoever. I'm so glad to hear that, because neither do I. I got some, <laughs> some elements of it. A lot of things I kind of realized after the fact. I've done a little bit of reading on Wikipedia that's filled in a few holes, but the fact that there's, there's the, the red and the black aliens... That they I both didn't, look the I, same. They're identical. Uh, one of them is is good. One of them is bad. And at one point, uh, Bonzo gets electrocuted through the phone. Sorry, he gets ionized through the phone by one of them, which gives him the superpower of being able to see the aliens, like in like in John Carpenter's They Live, and also being able to accidentally electrocute everybody he ever touches. <laughs> which I just found what the hell. Which becomes useful once later on when he revives a character. Um, yeah, I had no idea which race was uh, ionizing him at that point. I didn't know there were two races at that point. I thought the the evil ones were trying to kill him hmm. through the phone. But it turns out it was the good ones trying to give him this power to help them. There is no there there are there is. I was going to say there's no explanation in this film. There is explanation in this film. The film just doesn't want you to be able to understand it. Because there, there is one scene of it's, it's, there's an opening crawl which gives you like the corners to a puzzle and nothing <laughs> in the middle, and then there's a scene of exposition from the aliens via hologram that the other characters talk over. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really need that scene, but they don't, they won't let me hear it. <laughs> I don't know why. I just, I found this film really frustrating in terms of not being able to understand a damn thing. Yeah, I mean, there are so many questions and. I will say that one of my favorite points in the movie, and it's, it really encapsulates how I feel as a viewer, is it's somewhere in the middle where the, uh, the red electroids are attacking in order to uh, get back the uh, acillo thruster or whatever that <laughs> thing is called. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and I, did, <laughs> I did notice, I, I don't think that they're intentional... Uh, but there were a couple parallels to Back to the Future that I noticed. Like it, it does have, uh, whenever he's in the beginning in this jet car, which is uh, not not extremely dissimilar to a uh, DeLorean, except for the fact that the body looks like it was made from a uh, pickup truck. Um, and then there's this triangle light that looks a little bit like it could have been that it could have inspired the flux capacitor. 
<laughs> if anything inspired Back to the Future, then I'm grateful this film happened because Back to the Future is perfect. And but, and also like uh, one trivia that I thought was interesting was Christopher Lloyd is in this, and yes. of course he played Doc Brown, and two other actors who almost played Doc Brown were John Lithgow and um, oh, I forget it, it was either Jeff Goldblum or Peter Weller. Oh, I think geez. probably Jeff, Glo- Jeff Goldblum. I'm so happy Peter Weller didn't play Christopher Lo- uh, uh, Doc Brown because he is like a vacuum of charisma <laughs> in, in, in this film at least. I've only ever seen him in, in this, in Robocop and in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness and yeah, he's he's not very charismatic. He he was well cast as a robot, <laughs> and he he's supposed to be this this Renaissance man of of science and music, and he's a samurai. <laughs> he he's seen at one point kind of he's got samurai swords and is in kind of the the martial arts gear. But he is he's the most laid back laconic performance I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, I, it's like he's playing a bookcase. I have bet. I, I got sidetracked, but I was going to say that my favorite part of the film that encapsulates how I feel is like they're chasing the 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 aliens through this through Buckaroo's compound uh, or the laboratory or, or whatever it is, um, and there and Jeff Goldblum says, "Why is there a watermelon there?" <laughs> I'll tell you later. And that's exactly how I feel about this film. <laughs> yeah, and there's and like there's a scene immediately before that where before or after where one of um one of Buckaroo's entourage is a character called Perfect Tommy, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> okay, fine, no explanation needed. Uh, who he gets distracted by this rotating children's toy, and then an alien just kind of jumps <laughs> on him. And uh, again, he's no like, real that could be a trap. <laughs> No, it's just a toy. <laughs> she just stands there fixated on it, just spinning. <laughs> it just falls from the ceiling on his back. Okay, why not? <laughs> uh, and there, yeah. there are so many just weird things. Like, um, I, I feel like, like the, they were trying uh, to make... Sorry, go ahead. Like, like the fact that his... Uh, I guess his dead wife, the, the woman who was crying, just happens <laughs> to be her long-lost twin sister. And... <laughs> And he he stops he he he's playing a concert, <laughs> and he stops the concert and asks to the audience, "Is is everybody okay? Is something wrong with somebody?" And it's somewhere out there, not having fun. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Penny Pretty <laughs> is just <laughs> sitting there crying, and he keeps calling her Peggy. And then she pulls out a gun and starts to go shoot herself. But uh, someone in the crowd bumps her and it goes off in the air. And then she gets arrested for trying to kill Buckaroo Banzai. But not before every single member of of Buckaroo's band pulls out at least one gun as well. (laughs) They're all on stage performing, but they're all packing guns. Mm. (laughs) They're all armed. Like Even the the guy who's playing two saxophones at the same time... Has guns? Where? Is... <sighs> this film, Jesus, this film. And, but yeah, just yeah, the, the character of Penny, Penny, pretty. Just and the fact that she's the long lost twin. Nothing is made of that. It's just that's a thing that exists. That is a thing that happened. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> that's, that's everything in this film. Everything in this film defies I, any kind I'm, of explanation. The fact that 
that at the like the film opens with Buckaroo Banzai and New Jersey, which is Jeff Goldblum's character, performing brain surgery. With a laser. With a laser. <laughs> and Buckaroo invites New Jersey to be a part of his band. He doesn't specify part of his band. He says, do you want to work with me? Like, full time. And, and um, Jeff Goldblum kind of assumes it's to be in the band. And he asks, can you sing? I, was like, I, can, I can dance a little. <laughs> and then whenever they come pick him up at the police station, he's in full cowboy getup, <laughs> even though none of the other <laughs> members of the band have any sort of cowboy motif. And he he's wears a... this cowboy outfit throughout the rest of the film with no explanation. This bright red shirt, this giant 10-gallon hat, and this, these fur-covered trousers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any, anybody else chaps. <laughs> I don't think anyone else could pull off that outfit other than Jeff Goldblum. It like, almost looks like he had just been over filming um, for Pee Wee's Playhouse, <laughs> yeah. and he just wore the same outfit. Yeah, who knows? That may have happened. Like, I'd, I'd believe it, <laughs> judging by this film. Yeah. I'd, I'd believe it takes place in the same universe as Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure, and yeah, and you mentioned that like at one point somebody pulls out a Buckaroo Bonsai comic book, <laughs> and someone is, and there's a Buckaroo Bonsai arcade game. I noticed. And that's... let's not forget his his fan club, the Blue Blazer Regulars, who he can call up to assist him in his endeavors at any point. <laughs> yeah, and and one thing I noticed, like I. I know that it has absolutely no connection, but as soon as it came on screen, whenever he, whenever he called for whenever they called for help, and the uh, the little kid answered, and then it cuts over to his dad, and uh, my first thought was, "Oh look, a double decker couch." <laughs> Even though I realized shortly afterwards that it's just that he's just like a salesman, and they're set for they're just on display. Uh, if this film influenced Back to the Future and the Lego Movie, <laughs> oh, this is my new favorite film. But uh, what one aspect I did I did quite enjoy was the explanation behind the the infamous Orson Welles War of the Worlds um, mix up from mm. um, back in the 30s, I think it was, when obviously he read War of the Worlds on radio. People thought it was real. They kind of explained that that's that was the aliens really landing and they controlled Orson Welles to do it as a hoax. I really like that explanation. I'm not sure what it is, but I, I thought that's that's a good use of some real world like events. Mm-hmm. It's a nice explanation, and I thought yes, more of that, please. And then we have none of that anymore. We just have that leads to like 150 people by the name, all by the name of John, yeah, like, applying for like, citizenship, and they all have <laughs> stupid surnames. Yeah, John some of them are normal. Yeah, <laughs> some of them are normal, but it's, uh, and and of course Christopher Lloyd's uh, surname is John Big Bootay. Yes, which which uh, John Lithgow's character keeps saying is Big Booty, which leads to Christopher Lloyd yelling, "It's Big Bootay, Tay Tay Tay," which <laughs> may be my favourite line, other than <laughs> other than the one that that's become famous of the. Uh, we don't have to be mean because remember, no matter where you are, sorry, where you go, there you are. That's a very zen means nothing phrase but it's, it's yeah. the one that's become this transcended the film it's the one that people recognize i had no idea where it came from and now and now i know so yay <laughs> I, I hope you forgive me for making you watch this 
No, I've it's one of those where I've I've always been curious about it myself. But yeah, it's it's just one of those where it has I mean it, it has all these moments and you can call out any sort of moment and you can look at it as the singular event and say that is really neat or really weird or really amazing or really funny. But whenever you string all these moments together, there's no connection that you can figure out in your head. It's just a series of events that, that, that are it's randomly thrown together to form something that's almost a plot. Like the, the it all starts off with with him trying to drive through solid matter. Mm-hmm. It's never really explained why he's trying to drive through solid matter or how, in doing so, it sends him to the eighth dimension. Why the eighth? Why not the second? That would seem more obvious. Why? And the fact that in that eighth dimension, that is where the evil aliens have been sent. This is what I, I picked up from Wikipedia. Now they were kind of banished there. And John Lithgow's character, he was taken over by by the leader by yep. trying to go through solid matter back in the past. Yeah, they were <laughs> they were trying to do the experiment in the fifties, but uh, John Lithgow's scientist, Doctor Lazardo, got <laughs> stuck halfway in the wall instead of going through it. And while and he, he comes out as the Joker, pretty much. Yeah, that, that's how I saw it. I thought, yes, this must be a comic book movie. That's that's the Joker's background. He comes back with crazy hair and crazy skin and crazy teeth. Yeah, and, and, crazy. and is addicted to electricity. <laughs> he electrocutes himself to do the flashback, which, yeah, I, I loved that. But just, John Lithgow, maybe this film's saving grace. He he is in this movie. He's going full Lithgow. And he, he's he's dedicated to his role. His, his role is insane, but he damn it, he's going to play it as best he can. And he just does so with full gusto. He's he's really intense. He's he's really insane. He's just angry all the time and shouty. And I loved every second of it. John Lithgow is one of my favorite character actors. Yeah, it, and one like I, I didn't read a ton of trivia about this film, but one one of the things that I read and it's really surprising is that. Um, like we see a lot of John Lithgow in the beginning with the uh, the mental uh, asylum that he's in, um, and then he escapes from the mental asylum, and then we don't hear back from him for like 42 minutes before he reappears, and yet I, it doesn't feel like he's gone that long. Yeah, I, I did like the, the best parts are when he's on screen, as far as I'm concerned. But I, I did kind of feel like the film was flagging a little bit. I was getting, I was getting too much of. Buckaroo Banzai doing one thing after another, having his meeting with Penny, then having his press conference, which Penny is bizarrely <laughs> invited along to, and sat on the board. And that's when he gets his phone call from the president. That's when he gets electrocuted just through the phone. And I was, I was kind of thinking, like, I need at some point he's going to come back in. But then the aliens arrive, and Christopher Lloyd's one of them, and uh, Vincent Chiavelli and Dan Hedaya are the two other sub aliens who should be mentioned as well. Two other great character actors. Uh, Vincent Chiavelli was the subway ghost in, in Ghost. And Dan Hedaya has been in everything. He's, in, he's Nixon in Dick, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so they show up. And I, the aliens are a lot of fun. I loved the, the when they kind of have the, have the fight later on when Christopher Lloyd has his it's Dick Boutet thing. He, um, when John Lithgow just doesn't care, Christopher Lloyd flips him off. The aliens, <laughs> they, still, they still flip the bird at each other. Yeah. <laughs> Which amused me. Yeah, and and we we also have this this completely random scene with the the two 
uh, redneck hunters that shoot down the the good alien spaceship. Yes, with with the <laughs> the Rastafarian uh, good uh, good alien in it. Um, what was he, John Parker? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. That was. I had no idea where that was going. What was happening until about ten minutes ago? I, I still I'm still not sure what was going on in that scene. <laughs> yeah, this. I mean, I I feel like we could talk about this for another hour and still have still come nowhere closer to. Uh, understanding. I think we'd need to both sync up the film and kind of talk it through as we're watching it three or four times. Then we'd maybe understand half of it. Plus, with the and watching it with the commentary and and the the making of and the the special features and interviews with the uh, the director and writer. I don't think the film is worthy of that. I don't think it really like. I think understanding it all is not worth it. I, I'm, I'm good. There's some films like uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey that's worth a second go round. <laughs> this maybe not. This is maybe a, a watch it once, maybe watch it twice, just to kind of laugh at it. I, I see this as being a good film to watch, like Friday night after going to the pub, like come out with a group of mates. Let's watch Buckaroo Bonsai. That'll be a laugh. Have it on in the background because it doesn't really matter if you drift in and out of it. It won't make sense either way. <laughs> right. <laughs> I I completely agree with that because I I watched it. I mean, I watched it stone cold sober, and I was maybe I was a little half asleep. But uh, aside from that, I like there were there were definitely some funny moments here and there, and just some ridiculous moments. But yeah, most of the time I was just scratching my head trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Yeah, I, I started watching it stone cold sober. Got about twenty minutes in, like right, nope. I need a drink for this one. Uh, when I went and got one. I didn't think I'd get through it otherwise. <laughs> like the, why does the president have to have a bad back? Why is he suspended in this giant hamster wheel? Like, what does that add to the plot? Yeah, just, it's... Just why? just means he's facing down when he's on the phone to people. Just to make it more visually interesting, I guess. It's, it's just... It's like they're, trying, they're desperately trying to make a cult film. They just throw in as many things that could start some kind of film cult that could be spun off in different directions and um, fan-based over. Let's, let's do that. If you were going to try and make a cult film, you'd make Buckaroo Bonsai, I think. Yeah, and, and, and it really is just so bizarre, some of the choices that they make. And a lot of it just, I don't know, it's... It's tough to talk about. Like the, I mean, we have the scene with where they, like at, at the end, the the bad aliens. I mean, and just the fact that the bad aliens and the good aliens look exactly alike. They're called the same thing. <laughs> just like stick a wig on one of them at least. Just something. Put give one of them sunglasses. I don't care. Just do something. The only one that looks any different is Chris Floyd's character because he's wearing spectacles. That's the only difference when they're in alien form. And it's it's very clearly just, just men in masks, really bad latex masks, and wearing these giant latex gloves when they're yeah, showing their hands. I will say, like, one of the, the things that I thought was kind of funny, that I don't think any of the, the red electroids do this, but uh, John, uh, John Parker definitely did that. Uh, anytime he was wearing, where he was in alien makeup, he always wiggled his fingers an extra amount. To uh, there, were, 
Yeah, and there are a couple of scenes where he's running, and he's like, like extra running. He's flinging his limbs <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I liked that as well. Yeah, but uh, I will say that I I think one of the one of the fascinating things about this film is that it has so much going for it as far as just the the designs of everything like the not so much the electroids but just the the production design uh for everything buckaroo bonsai like they they went to the extra level that they have this like that they made the buckaroo bonsai comic book uh to have in a scene and and they have the buckaroo bonsai uh, arcade cabinet yeah, there's a, yeah. a lot of world building going on. It, yeah. Even just with his team, like his, his team is like a dozen or so people. Most yeah. of them don't really get introduced, but there was supposed to be a sequel. Maybe they'd have had a bit more <laughs> screen time then. You get you get the bit at the end. Um, watch for the next adventure of Buckaroo Banzai. Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League. <laughs> Can't say I don't want to see that. <laughs> That'd be interesting. <laughs> but yeah, there's a, a lot of world building and. and even yeah, and, like... and every and even though we don't get to see a lot of it, and the characters do feel like they have this unseen backstory, but it, it feels like the the actor or at least the writer has written out this like detailed backstory for every one of these characters. Yeah, which may may be a problem. I think there's that may deter from how uh, coherent it all is because there's maybe too many characters for just this one film like there's there's so many people like, you, you don't you don't need three or four of the entourage members you need Jeff Goldblum you need Clancy Brown the rest will just kind of merge into one other than the the Japanese scientist who works with John Lithgow's character well, uh, also, you don't even really need Jeff Goldblum I, th- I think as far as his contributions, I think Perfect Tommy is pro- probably contributes more. It's just Jeff Goldblum is more of a presence, and the fact that he's Jeff Goldblum makes you pay attention to him more. Well, I, I argue that every film needs Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> so you can't take him out as far as I'm concerned. That's, that's just the Jurassic Park hold over talking there. But any film with Jeff Goldblum in doesn't have enough. Any film that doesn't have Jeff Goldblum in should have Jeff Goldblum in. Is is the rule I live by? I think. Or maybe. Uh, I think it would have been better if he was playing Perfect Tommy. I can't see him with bleach blonde hair. I don't want to see that. Well, no, he does not have <laughs> bleach blonde hair. He just has to, like, they just call him Perfect Tommy. Yes, I, I know what you mean, but yeah. I, well, I, I like his, he's like the new guy to the group, and I, I like the kind of his almost bumbling Jeff goldblum persona that he brings to that. Like, if, if he's already established, you'd get less of that. And, uh, you know, except, I, I, except he does... Managed to take everything in stride. <laughs> well, he's Jeff Goldblum. You can't, you can't face him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, not, it's not like he says, why is there a watermelon there? And <laughs> the person says, uh, I'll tell you later. It's not like he <laughs> continues on about that. It's just like, okay. I needed a post-credit sting. Where they go back and say, "Oh, that watermelon! That's actually for dinner tonight. That's the only. It's just that's the fridge. Like, I, I, I needed something like that. But I, I like what you're saying about the um the work that went into design. Even things like the the alien ships is one that the yeah. like the um the escape pod kind of thing looks like a sea urchin. I quite I quite yeah. like the design that went into that, and they made it. You mentioned Bonsai's car. No effort has been made to make that aerodynamic. <laughs> it, it it looks like a Lego car. It looks like it, it, the the really basic kind of kids Lego blocks. Like it's almost like a Duplo. It's really really blocky. It's, yeah. it's like he's driving a, driving a cube, and that would not work to go through solid matter. You'd need something a little bit more. 
stri- uh, streamlined. Okay. Yeah, except they do they do try to explain it about how matter is like ninety nine percent empty space. But then why do they need to go so fast? Why does it have to be a jet car? Why not yeah, just make it a normal car? <laughs> and I, I think it's funny, too, every time that they show any of the experiments from the past, it's like they set it up and it looks like they're going to be going really fast, but they go really slowly. <laughs> yeah, when, yeah the, when he when Lithgow ends up flying through the wall, he's like just going along at walking speed almost. <laughs> and he physically jumps at the end to go through yeah. the wall. <laughs> Oh dear! Yeah, we could talk about this for a while, and just it would just be one of us says something, and the one laughs at it. But that's <laughs> all. That, that's all that recalling this film is. It's like, oh yeah, that happened. Why did that happen? I don't know. <laughs> okay, what about this thing? Yes, that I don't make know. Sense why. Either. No. <laughs> and we forgot one of the rules as to why this is a superhero film. He's called Buckery Bonsai, alliterative name. That means yeah. he's a superhero. Same with Penny Pretty. Has to be a superhero. Yeah. Because yeah, PP PP. Works for me. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think that about does it for the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Um, so, before we get back into remembering some other random weird thing about this film, uh, I'd like to thank you for coming back on the show. Oh no! Thank you for having me, and uh, hopefully next time I'll pick a better film, <laughs> <laughs> one we can make sense of. <laughs> well, I will say that. That often happens in, in the case of the superhero film is because uh, they're, they're about 50-50 in quality. Half of them are good, half of them are bad, and they're, and a bunch of them are still like somewhere in the middle, too. The, the problem is I've, I've seen most of the good ones. Yeah. Like it's, it's only the bad ones that are left, so you need to, <laughs> you need to change your rules. So I can come back on and talk about something really, really good that I love. I'll come back on and talk about Chronicle or something. I think, well, you've already done that, I think. Damn. And you've done all the good ones. There's no, there's, no good ones left. There's still a, a bunch of good ones that I haven't done. I haven't covered a lot of the, the MCU. and um, But I've seen all of them. I haven't done any of the like Spider any of the good well any of the Spider Man movies really. I, I can't remember Captain America: The First Avenger, so I'll, I'll happily come back on and talk about that. I can't remember <laughs> anything that happens other than the dance number halfway through. Um, but yeah, um, again, thank you for coming on, and why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online? Uh, yes, uh, lifefirstfilm dot com, freshersunday dot com, com. Uh, everything that I write anywhere gets posted on lifeversusfilm.com. I do a Monday update of everything I've done in the past week, so check there every Monday, or just follow me on Twitter at lifeversusfilm. And as always, I am Bubba Wheats, and you can follow me on Twitter at Bubba Wheats, and you can find me at flightsnightsandmovienights.com. You can also follow me and, at, uh, and the rest of my team of writers at channelsuperhero.com, the uh, New fall TV season is starting up soon, and there is a lot of new superhero shows that we'll be covering there. Um, so be sure to check that out. And then, and of course, this October over at Channel Superhero, we are doing 31 days of Tales from the Crypt. And every day, um, a different writer is going to be, and a couple podcasts too, are going to be taking a look at a different episode of Tales from the Crypt. So I'd appreciate if you'd check that out as well. And if you should you... particularly check it out on the 30th of October when I'll be posting my review <laughs> of whichever episode I said I'd do. I can't remember. 
The Death of Some Salesman. That's the one. Tim Curry. Yes, that's why I'm doing it, Tim Curry. Yeah. And if you want to know what two films I'll be talking about on the next episode, go ahead and listen through to the mashup trailer that's at the very end. Until next time. We represent the ruling body of the vampire nation. Four. They're offering you a truce. Three. You sure about this? Two. One. You want me to hunt them? Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer.